Well, welcome back to Work Minus, where we talk about what we need to drop from how we work today and quick pivots you can make to get closer to a better future of work. Today, our guests are Jonathan and Melissa Nightingale, founders at Raw Signal Group, and this episode is Work Minus Mind Reading. Hello, how are you guys today? Hi, Neil. How's it going? Great, thanks. I'm also doing well. It's good to have you guys on. You are extremely well known in a lot of tech circles, specifically uh, around Toronto. But why don't you tell us a little bit about you guys, uh, your history and the companies you come from? Uh, We are both 20 year tech veterans. I think both Jonathan and I started our careers. uh, Basically, we started going to school in the late 90s for technology and started our careers right around the time of the first Internet bubble. For those of your listeners who are old enough to remember it. Um, and we kept seeing tech organizations make the same mistakes over and over again. And one of the things that we got really lit up about was sort of the idea that people in tech organizations and in scaling organizations in particular rarely got the training that they needed in order to manage teams of people. Yeah, one of our touchstones um, for the, the writing we do, but also for the work we do at Raw Signal Group, is the assumption that most of what goes wrong in organizations in terms of how people tr- are treated it comes from ignorance, not malice. These mm. aren't these aren't people who, who aspire to management roles so they can make other people suffer, even though sometimes that's what happens. Um, it, it's mostly that nobody ever taught them how to do this better, right? You, you're a good engineer. You don't seem to be a sociopath, so we're going to put you in charge of a bunch of engineers. You're a good marketer. You've been around longer than the other marketers, whatever the, the rubric is. Suddenly, you're, you're running a team, and that's a totally different skill set. And a lot of the people that we were talking to and working with we're getting no training on how to do that. Including ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. People ask, like, why is the book so angry? Why, are, why is the <laughs> so pointed? And it's like, I'm, we're not angry at you. We're angry at us. This, these are the mistakes we made 10 years ago, and we wish we'd learned the fast way instead of the slow way. Yeah. Well, let's talk just briefly about your book, How Effed Up Is Your Management is the title and uh, an apt title at that. Uh, I loved it. It had a lot of great points in it. I think it really, the, the way it starts off is just talking about how a lot of the classic management principles that are out there are are still relevant, but a lot of the specific operational practices need to be updated and haven't been updated specifically for the tech world, right? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good summary. Um, there's a few points about the book I want to talk about before we get into our, our topic of mind reading. One is that I really liked is when you said that your job as a manager is to build the best team, not hire the best candidate. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. Um, you know, in a sense, it says it right on the face. Your job as a manager is, is to is to run a really highly effective team, right? And and in a growing organization, that's going to mean a lot of hiring. And we meet a lot of managers who say they just want to hire the, the best person for the job. They often say the best guy for the job, but let's give them credit and assume they're trying harder than that. Um, they want to hire the best person for the job. And then they end up with this team that's really homogenous, right? It's It's them and the eight people they went to college with, or it's them and the four people they worked in their last startup with. And, and we know that diverse teams outperform. We know that you need a mix of junior and senior skill sets. We know that diverse backgrounds uh, bring different perspectives to the table. So if you end up with this team of, of photocopies, your, your strategy is not working. Your thing about, oh, I'm, I'm just going to hire the best candidate for the job, that's, that's an approach that you can take. But if it leads to a substandard team, you got to look into to why you continue to do that and expect different results, right? There's, there's lots of ways to build a team thoughtfully that, that have a lot of inputs in terms of what's this team missing? Where do we need a different perspective? Where do we need a different level of seniority? It's not just about the, the best LinkedIn resume. It's, it's about where are the gaps in your organization? Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and Melissa, another point that you make in the book is that a manager's job is to maximize the investment the organization makes in that team. 
How does this change a manager's perspective versus how they might have operated before? Yeah, I think it's a it's a great question. One of the things that, that we really see managers in growing organizations struggle with is the identity shift from, I used to draw a lot of identity from being an individual contributor. I used to draw a lot of identity from being the smartest person in the role or the best person in that job function. And now it's really about leading a team of people to great outcomes. And so the, the orientation shifts from, I used to draw a lot of identity from my individual work, from the things I was doing day in, day out, to now I'm helping enable a team of people to do those things. And that can be really a strange shift for many folks because they they were good at a set of things and liked doing that work. And now their job is something completely different. And the way that they're going to get excited about that work is a little bit different than it was before. Um, what I say to managers who are starting out often is the though, is that the impact that you can have as a manager should outweigh the impact that you can have as an individual. If you are leading a team of people, if you're leading a team of six, you should be able to to sort of do bigger projects and enable sort of bigger work to happen within the organization than you were ever able to do on your own. We joke with managers sometimes. I I used to run a lot of engineering organizations. I ran the engineering organization in Mozilla for a while um, and have other places too. And, And I joke when I'm talking to engineering managers that never in the history of engineering as a discipline, have eight engineers spontaneously self-organized to produce eight engineers worth of well-aligned strategic output. Like it doesn't, it doesn't happen, right? We're, we're creative people, just like everybody else. We, we hear about the problems the business are, is facing. We, we see an email from a customer and we think about how to solve that thing. And we will run in 17 different directions to try and fix it. And a lot of early organizations struggle with this. They're like, yeah, we, our engineers are great. They're very smart. But sometimes the things that go out the door aren't the things that we need. Or we build stuff that sales doesn't know how to sell. Or, you know, marketing asks for something, but the thing that actually shows up looks different. And, and a lot of your role as a leader in that organization is to say, not I'm smarter than those eight engineers, not I could do their job better. Maybe that's a place you get some leadership legitimacy from, but it's, it's sort of the less interesting place. It's much more about how do I actually get six, seven, eight engineers worth of work out of eight engineers of payroll because because that's actually hard to do. And when you do it, what a what a lift for your organization. Yeah, wow. It's amazing. Uh, everyone should go out and uh, check this book out. It's got a lot of insights in it. Uh, I want to turn the conversation a little bit over to our topic of mind reading, which is uh, something you all suggested we talk about. Tell us what that means. What do you, how do you interpret that in terms of mind reading and management? And where are you going to find that most likely going on? One of the things that we see in scaling organizations is that so much of the start of a scaling organization starts from a place of ambiguity, right? It starts from a place of a lack of clarity around exactly how to get there. The the vision is clear, but the path to get there isn't. And so what ends up sort of happening in many of the organizations that we work with is that they get comfortable with that level of ambiguity and they attract that level of ambiguity in their hires, right? They look for folks who are comfortable with it. And as they grow and scale, as the organization gets bigger, as the targets get bigger, as the things that they're trying to achieve get bigger, they need to attract folks who, who aren't necessarily comfortable with that level of ambiguity. And if they haven't been writing things down along the way, if they haven't been sort of getting clear in their own minds about how to get there, um, that tends to be where a lot of the confusion and frustration shows up is they, they hire later stage startup people and those folks don't necessarily want to live in the space of guesswork. We had a, a founder we were talking to a little while ago and, and the organization that, that he had co-founded, one of their corporate values was think like an owner. And when we asked him, what does that mean to him? He said, well, look, it's like, it's like we're in this shop and there's parts all over the shop and we're trying to build a car. And 
think like an owner means if you see a part that's got to go onto the frame in order to make this car, don't wait for someone to tell you. Like we're all building the car as fast as we can. We all have our hands full with 500 things. Pick up the part and put it where it needs to go, right? And and what was interesting is that to him, that was really obvious. That's what think like an owner meant. And, and it should be something that anybody can internalize. You don't have to be the founder of this company to understand that we're building a car and you should grab the part nearest to you and put it where it goes. And the funny thing is that uh, that doesn't work. (laughs) Employee 50, employee 500 coming into your organization doesn't see 28 parts around a shop and be like, well, that's a bumper. That obviously goes on the car. Person 50 coming into your organization, and certainly person 500, might not know we're building a car, right? And might be like a specialist on some sub-element of that thing, which is great if you want to build millions of these cars, but is not realistic to assume they can just hold the whole plan for what we're building in their head and look around and see all the moving parts and figure out which one's the most important. That's, that's mind reading. That's assuming that that person coming in sees everything that the founder sees, sees everything that their boss sees. And it's, it's an example, but it's an example that's just not true as much as we wish it were. Yeah. One of the things just to sort of chime in there, one of the things that we see a lot is that the, the founders and the owners of the business, like the CEO, the folks who've been there since the very beginning, since it was just an idea and a kitchen table, they hold it all in their heads really naturally because there, there wasn't a business before they started running that business. And the folks who are coming in to do sort of the day-to-day work, like are much more focused on the details and the space of that work. And it, it's, that's, it's not a bad thing. It just means that the way that they're looking at problems is really different. And they're often talking right past each other, right? Because the, the folks who are holding the business vision are speaking from sort of the, the 50,000 foot view and the folks who are doing the detail work are speaking from, from sort of what's right in front of them. And, and that can be frustrating not only for founders, but it can also be incredibly frustrating for the folks who are, who are doing the day-to-day work. Yeah, I know it must be impossible to say, okay, this is the moment when you, you cross from being you know, just a small group of people who are sharing all this collective vision and intelligence into more of a, an organization or a company. But can you share with us some early signals or early indicators uh, people can be looking for to say, hey, maybe things have changed around here? What are some signals to see? One of the first signals that we see, and, and often when folks sort of pick up the phone to call the two of us, is that they go from about 20 to 40 people, right? So the, the organization doubles in size. And often there's a sense that we've doubled in size, but we haven't doubled the output of the organization, right? So we've got more people doing more things, but we're somehow going slower than we did before. And for us, is always an interesting moment. And that tends to be around the 40-person mark. Yeah, those, those doublings keep, keep getting in your way, right? At 40 people, um, we do. You, you start to hire specialists instead of generalists. You start to have someone who's, who's just in charge of social media. And you used to have one person who ran all of marketing, and probably half of sales as well. Um, But we see it again, 40 to 80 people. You start to have people who want to know what their career path looks like in the organization. And that was not something that you ever heard when there were 14 people just like grabbing parts from around the shop and building the car as quickly as possible. Um, And and managers don't know what to do. You start having managers, right? Somewhere between 20 and 80. And one of those doublings is the first time you realize that you know, the CTO probably can't manage 27 engineers, no matter how great a manager she is, right? That, that the head of sales is, is now running a big department and is going to need some people to help. And those moments where you feel the lack of structure, um, they tend to be the places where it breaks if you deny it for too long. If you, if you still count on the way it was when you were tiny, you find that the problems start getting worse and worse. And they, and they don't get worse in a linear way. 
they get worse in a like a geometric, like an exponential way. They start getting really hard, really fast. And leaders in those organizations often come to us a little dazed, right? Like it was all going so well last year and we, we secured a new round of funding and that let us hire a bunch more people and we were excited about that. And now I don't know what happened to my company because people have, have stupid problems. They're bringing me stuff that they should figure out for themselves. And, and I've gotten people quitting and people angry with me. And I don't know why, because I'm doing the same stuff I used to do. This, that's, that's, you know, most of the founders we, we sit across from, like you, you generally don't call us when things are going great. So let's talk about what's actually going on. It's, it's also often the unpleasant surprise, right? And sort of to bring it back to the topic of mind reading, it's often my team is off, <clears throat> my team is off building something and what they, what they bring back to me is not anywhere close to what I thought it was going to be. And so that, that frustration of mind reading works in both directions. So what do you tell someone who's, who's kind of going through this transition of leaving a, a small where everyone's together and tight and who really feels upset about how things are? Like you're, you're talking about, they said, it used to be better. We used to all know what was going on. Um, is, is there is the advice you give them just to accept the fact that, hey, you are now an organization with 80 people and you need to start acting like it? Or are there tools where you can bring back some of that collective consciousness and that you do kind of reintroduce some element of mind reading? There's, uh, there's layers to that question. So let me unpack it a little bit. So one, there's a lot of tools that are really straightforward, tools that, in fact, a lot of organizations stumble onto without really realizing their full power, right? So um, having a set of corporate values is an exercise in getting stuff out of people's brain and, and onto a poster somewhere, right? Into the, into the room somewhere, into the Slack channel somewhere. It, it takes a thing that we all took for granted that obviously we're respectful when we disagree. Or obviously we do anything to make the customer happy. Like those, those moments where you think it should be obvious, that's a signal. The first time you feel like one of your employees did something and it, it's weird that they did it because it was obviously the wrong choice. Uh, Melissa's got a chapter in the book where she says obvious to you is not the same as obvious. And that lesson just keeps repeating until you learn it, right? So, you know, values are an example. Um, there's, a, there's a ton of them. Most organizations at some point in their maturity, end up adopting some kind of goals framework and saying, here are the things that are most important. Maybe you use OKRs. Maybe you just have a, a dashboard in the lobby with the five numbers you care most about, whatever it is. That moment where you say, oh, was it unclear that this is the focus of the organization? Let me make that clear. Here are the things that we care most about. Here's what I'd like your work to align around. That's important, right? Like that's, that's a, a signpost. That's a North Star for people who did not see that as obvious and, and who somehow managed to miss it in orientation. It's a moment where you were counting on mind reading and then you bring it out. There's still creativity that happens. There's still generativity. You still want those people to be thoughtful and entrepreneurial and have initiative, but they're doing it within a context where they understand anything at all about the expectations of the place, um, the rules by which we operate, the things that we care about and the things that we don't. You uh, mentioned something at the, at the start that kind of relates back to this about how there's often not a lot of documentation that happens in those early stages. What are some of the things that a, a smaller team, even a small team inside a large organization should be documenting along the way that can help in this transition? I mean, I think Jonathan touched on values. I'd also say like, if you, if you have a, a loose encapsulation of your vision, it's really useful to get that out of your head as much as possible and onto paper, right? Where do you think the, like, why does the organization exist? What's the purpose of the organization? 
and sort of where are you headed? And that just that capturing of it, especially in the early stage where everybody feels like, yes, that's what's in my head is really helpful for the 50th, 51st and 151st person. And, you know, we're talking right now in, in sort of grand language because a lot of the people we interact with are, are founders and CEOs. But if you bring it down to the individual manager, I'd say there's there's two things they can write down today that make a, a huge difference. The first one is any kind of job description at all for the people on the team, right? What did we hire you to do? And and in the very early stages, you interview people, you get a good vibe, there's not a lot of structure, you bring the person in, and you're indexing a lot off their versatility and their high tolerance for ambiguity. And so you don't write down a job description because the job description for everybody in the company would just say, do whatever needs doing, right? Grab the part and put it on the car. Um, but as you start to grow, that moment where you sit down with a person and say, we're big enough now that like, we should be clear about what your, what your gig looks like and what growth looks like, right? It doesn't have to be you know, a book. It, it can fit on a page, but say like, here are the main expectations of a senior engineer in our organization, right? In my organization. Um, and, and here's what I expect you to do in terms of mentorship. And here's what I expect you to do in terms of initiative. Just articulating that can be a, a, the start of a really useful conversation and gets you to the other side of a bunch of mind reading that that person had to do, who is maybe like a senior engineer for the first time and doesn't actually know what's different about it versus the, the job they had before, the job they had before that. So that's when you can write down, you know, you can set aside four hours and do it for every member of your team and, and call it done, uh, but, but bring a lot of clarity. And, and the other one I'd say is, you know, you're doing one-on-ones with your team, um, writing those down having any kind of agenda at all. I don't actually care which system you use. I don't care if you're using an app for it. Like, it's not about that, but uh, having some kind of formalism that says, hey, this is a space where we talk about important stuff, where I give you feedback, where we commit to actions, um, and we write that down. And next week, we're going to write that one down too. means that as you grow and you get to where you're six months, a year, 18 months into this practice, you now have some backlog. Right. By the time somebody wants to talk about their career growth, you've got a thing you can look at and say, hey, here's the progress we've made over the last year. And here are the next areas I think we should be investing. Does that make sense to you? And, and that, again, is, is work you can start doing tomorrow to just get stuff out of your head and down in a consistent way. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's, it's always great to hear about those those easy things you can do even right now to start this process of, of getting away from something like mind reading. Let's let's bring it into the the context of somebody who's in like more of a middle management position or are brought into an organization. How would you describe the mind reading process going up and down the management cycle and how can it really cause problems in organizations? One of the things we hear a lot from middle managers who've been brought into organizations where there was high ambiguity before and they're starting to sort of professionalize and and specialize is that there's a high level of frustration of like of not necessarily understanding why things are the way that they are. And so people walk in and they, they feel like everybody around them is an idiot, right? There's this frustration of like, everyone here is, is just sort of running around like chickens with their heads cut off. They're all picking up whatever part, but nobody seems to own anything clearly. And there's sort of no specificity in how people are showing up and doing the job. And I think one of the things that we see is that for those middle managers who are coming in, it can be really helpful to, to start sentences with help me understand. Right. Help me understand why why this is the work that we're doing or why this is a priority before you necessarily turn everything upside down and, and you know, get people sort of more confused. Yeah, I, I, I just echo that. I think that in middle management, especially when it's your first time doing it, there's this feeling that your job is to is to take care of your team. 
right? That your team's got a set of work that they're doing and mostly your job is to provide continuity for them. Uh, and, and it results in managers getting themselves trapped a lot because when they get harsh feedback about how their team is performing or not performing, they feel like their job is to shelter their team from that. And, and that, that's not helping, right? Now you're, you're sort of hoping that your team will read your mind and figure out that they need to be better at a set of things because your boss is telling you that, but you don't know how to communicate that to them. And, and then when they continue to fail at it, your boss gets more and more frustrated and eventually starts pressuring you to fire these people who have never gotten that feedback because, because you didn't know how to articulate it. Right. So that, that sort of telephone game feedback thing is, is a big piece of it. And the other thing I'd say there is uh, sometimes the mind reading is about the state of the business, right? I've, I, I won't blame anyone else. I've been in the spot where I've been a manager running a team as hard as I could. And whenever it came to goals time, I would sort of figure out what my team cared about and I would write those goals and I would, I would just go to the mat to defend those. And I would never let in the insight from above that, that that was the wrong stuff, that the business needed my team to be doing really different stuff. I, I would fight it because I felt like continuity was my job, giving stability to my engineers so that they could keep working was my job. But also I had managers who weren't very clear about it, who were hoping that I would figure it out, that I would have the same business sense that they would, that it would be obvious to me that my team was working on the wrong stuff. And, and as a result, I think my team was much less effective at getting stuff done in the organization than it could have been in those early days because I, I failed at mind reading. One of the things that we see a lot is like the, that most folks are showing up to work and wanting to do a good job. And so if they're failing in the role, is it because they're, they're showing up and, and hoping to fail in the role? No, it's often that they're showing up and trying as hard as they can, but they're missing some piece of context or some information that would unlock what they're there to be doing and what they're meant to be focused on. Uh, and so one of the things that I think we both push pretty hard on is if you've got somebody who's in on your team, if you're managing so down in that sense, and you've got somebody who's on your team, who's not able to do the role or you're coming in and they're, they're not doing well in the position, taking a moment and stepping back and saying, where, where are they operating from a different set of assumptions, right? Are they thinking about the business six months ago versus where the business is now? Where are there places where I can provide clarity and connect those dots? Because generally folks don't show up wanting to to do a poor job at work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't you close us out with maybe a story or two? I know there's no perfect companies out there, but just a few examples of, of companies who have done this well, maybe have made that transition from uh, a mind reading culture to one that's that's more explicit in what they're expecting. Do you have any stories you can share there? Yeah. So um, one example that, that I point to from time to time is the work that uh, glitch in New York and Neil Dash's company has done around salary transparency. Uh, compensation is one of those things that, that people have very strong feelings about. And one of the real challenges as a manager or as a, an individual contributor in any organization is that that negotiation around, am I being paid fairly? What, how does fair change over time? How does fair change based on the work that I'm doing and, and its evolution? Um, that's a really unbalanced conversation. And I think junior managers can feel like their job is to hoard that information and to sort of find the number, the, the minimum number that's acceptable to the employee. And, and it creates a bunch of awful game playing and just basically a lot of mind reading, a lot of guessing about uh, whether this is their final offer, about whether they're really going to quit or whether they're, they're really unhappy or just trying to haggle. Um, you know, salary is, is on the flip side, not something where you can just turn around and say, all right, the salary spreadsheet's public. Everybody can see what everybody makes. Problem solved. But a thing that I think 
uh, Glitch did really well was they embarked on a process around it. They spent most of a year, from what I understand, talking with every individual about like what this would mean, figuring out what the right level of salary transparency was. I think they settled on making bands of salary available publicly or within the company for every role. And it meant that for some people, you could basically figure out what they made. And for other people, well, they, they disappeared into the noise. But it, it created um, an explicit set of conventions where previously it had, it had been just guesswork and, and mind reading about whether my manager was, was telling the truth or not. I, I think it's an example of something that was, I'm sure, scary for them, but took them out of a mind reading place into a, a certainty place. And it, it's, just, it's just one less thing for them to be freaking out about. I think it's, it's a powerful move. That's great. It's a great example. Well, it's been great to talk to you guys. I wish we could uh, have a little bit more time, but hopefully we'll have you on the show again. Uh, where can people go to, to get in touch with you if they're wanting to know more about what you guys are doing? Well, our company website is rawsignal.ca and the book is hfuiym.com. All right, well, make sure you go check that out. Jonathan and Melissa, thanks so much for being on the show and we hope you all have a great day. Awesome. Thanks, Dale. Thank you.